Okay, so your outline says we are uh, doing, continuing with our Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. I decided, as you know, two weeks ago that it was just taking way too long to try to review what we'd done in the first two or three years. So we abandoned that project and just started into this year's material because we'll be lucky to get through Emphasis 6 this year. Uh, and if we stay on that kind of a pace, since it took us a whole year to do Emphasis 5, we... This series could end up being pretty, too. you guys will all be uh, done with your PhDs by the time we finish the series. So we, uh, and some of you weren't planning to get PhDs, so. Uh, <laughs> so I heard that Andy's uh, study went well last week. Um, I really meant to uh, have the podcast from his teaching Sunday up on our website by now, but in case you don't know, we started a class this past Sunday that will be about every four weeks from 1.30 to 3 on Sunday afternoons. That's a survey of the whole Bible. Does anyone have the book we're using for that on them? Um, it's, it's, um, it's the simplest to read book we've ever found on this subject one one of the most important things that i could stress to you is the difference between the way christians approach the bible uh before christ after christ th for the first 1850 years of church history versus the way modern christians have been brainwashed to approach the bible is modern christians have preconceived ideas about what the bible says and then find proof text to to uh, back those up. So most Christians have a, uh, an approach to Bible study that tends to focus on individualistic passages. Try to stay focused on me. Kyle can get set in without your, uh, everyone's help. Just one or two guys can help. So what did I just say? Does anyone, because I don't want you to miss that. To do what? Horrible Christianity? <laughs> no. To examine passages outside their context, you know, to, to look at isolated passages, instead of reading a book the way you would read any other book, that it's written, you know, the Bible is written by one author, working by his Holy Spirit through 40 human beings on three continents over 2,000 years, but it has one theme and one message and one purpose. And so, you know, you need to learn to read whole books of the Bible, and you need to learn how to look for major themes. And that's actually gonna, what we're going to be doing the most this year. Last year, we looked at uh, restoring the Bible as one, and we did a lot on what the Bible says in the first semester, a lot about what the Bible says in terms of uh, Jesus' approach to the Bible, the apostles' approach to the Bible, and looking at the Bible as one kind of as, as a scriptural idea. Then we looked at, in the second semester, we looked at the modern ideas, the paradigms. Paradigms are a set of assumptions that you bring to the text, whether you know it or not, and, and everyone has them. And you grew up being ta taught these without ever being taught these. In other words, you weren't conscious of them, but nevertheless, they are a set of lenses that you look at scripture through, and they're kind of shared by the evangelical world and they came out of uh, a historical development that was called the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy of the 1800s. So a lot of those ideas, like uh, 
the modernists uh, had the idea of higher criticism and evolution, and then the conservatives responded with ideas like pietism, dispensationalism, antinomianism, and so forth. And so whether you know what those big words mean or not, and whether, or you take the idea, well, I don't want to know big words. Just give me straight Bible. A lot of people have been taught that. That's actually one of the modern ideas. <laughs> and if you don't know those words, you will be eat, eat, eating those words and sleeping those words and interpreting the Bible through... You know, you'll be doing a dispensationalist interpretation of the Bible when you know, if you don't know what dispensationalism is, because 95% of churches out there are doing that. So if you don't know what antinomianism is, you'll be studying the Bible from an antinomian point of view. Because So you can't just bury your head in the sand and say, I don't want to know these intellectual things. Uh, it, it will keep you blinded. And in fact, Jeff, something we should talk about is uh, since probably your eyes were probably open more than anyone else's to some of those big ideas last year, it might be good for you to share your testimony about that sometime. Let's, let's discuss that thing coming up. Just because uh, if you, until you kind of begin to look at things on that kind of level, you, you think you're getting the Bible's message, but you're in fact not. So... Tonight, uh, last week, we, or two weeks ago, I said, uh, we turned the corner by starting to talk about the major theme of the Bible called the kingdom of God. So if I had to kind of summarize what is the major idea of the Bible, I'd have to throw in at least three, three words that are all one word. And I'd have to throw in that Jesus Christ is the Lord God, King of, of the universe, and the Bible is a progressive revelation of the king of the kingdom of God, and it's a progressive unfolding of God's purposes to bring his kingdom to earth prior to his king coming back a second time. 95% of Christians are, are thinking that mostly the kingdom of God is going to come after the second coming of the king, when in fact the Bible is very clear uh, that that's wrong. And that the kingdom of God is already here and present as we're going to study tonight. And that God intends to fill the earth with his kingdom as a way of, of ushering in the, the coming forth of his son a second time. Of his king. And then probably a third idea. So king, king and kingdom. Probably a third idea is that God, the king, works in his kingdom through covenants. And last year we did a lot, in the first semester, we did a lot of studying about covenants. We looked at eight uh, ingredients that all biblical covenants have, and we looked at eight biblical covenants. And then we went through the eight biblical covenants to show that each, each of those have all eight of the biblical ingredients of covenants. That's what we did fall semester last year. When I was, that's when I was trying to talk Teresa into coming. <laughs> we, we got her this year. It took a while, but we, we broke her down. No, um, I promise I'm worth the wait. <laughs> oh, we know that. So last two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God is the central and most important theme of the whole Bible, and we backed that up with a lot of scripture and so forth. So tonight, we're going to talk about what on earth is the kingdom of God. That is, we're going to give a definition of the kingdom of God. Now, if you notice in the title, I have heaven in brackets. Why do I uh, have heaven in brackets? Daniel? Because that's the traditional view of where he's No, 
No, in, in fact, that's actually why I have the word earth in there. What on earth is the kingdom of God, Byron? It's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Right, and who, who mostly refers to it as the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament? Matthew. Matthew. Why did he do that? Byron knows this. You must keep, keep going, Byron. Right. Today in Bible survey class at Dominion Academy, uh, Father Wayne spent uh, most, you know, they're still in Genesis 2. <laughs> After two or three months, he's way more detailed than me, if you think I'm detailed. Forget it. I'm not even in his league. Um, so uh, I think they'll finish Genesis 3 by the end of the year. No, no, they're supposed to finish the Pentateuch in one year is what I'm told. We'll see. But... Uh, you know, I'm just going to try to get through Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8 on Thursday. <laughs> uh, so they look at it pretty pretty thoroughly. Um, but a lot of the time today was spent on the fact that in Genesis 1, God's name is revealed as Elohim. Uh, and uh, in Genesis 2, God's name Yahweh or YHWH, which is called the Tetragrammaton, is, uh, is used for the first time. And especially the, the Tetragrammaton, which most people pronounce Yahweh because there's no vowels in Hebrew and because the Hebrew letter for the Y is uh, halfway between a Y and a J sound. Sometimes you'll see it as a J. Sometimes you'll see it as a Y. Uh, the second letter is always W. The third letter um, can be... No, I'm sorry, the second letter is H. third letter can be W or V. And the third third letter is H, or fourth letter is H. I'm sorry, boy. And uh, I should have just wrote it on the board. It would have been easier. But that's why you get some people saying it was more popular to say Jehovah 100 to 150 years ago. Most people say Yahweh today. But the truth is, in Hebrew, there aren't any vowels. And Hebrew actually was a dead language that was purposely resurrected as part of the Zionist movement that, that led to the... Uh, the Balfour Declaration in 1914 and the Jews starting to move back to Israel. And Israel, of course, became a nation in 1948 and all that kind of stuff. So Hebrew scholars resurrected the ancient language of Hebrew based on biblical text without knowing for sure how it was really pronounced. They just had to uh, take their best guesses at the vowels. Now, some will argue that they really got it right. Like if you study Greek today, Greek is a dead language. So I took five quarters of New Testament Greek, and my Greek professor was always upset at me that I was pronouncing the Greek words wrong. <laughs> now the Anna corrects me in them. But I uh, <laughs> don't even need a Greek professor. But, uh, but I was never any good at pronouncing words <laughs> anyway. And the truth of the matter is it's somewhat speculative how they're pronounced, if that makes sense. But YHWH, what is the best way to translate that? Does anybody know? Some of you Dominion Academy students, you should know that. You know, Jonathan? If you don't know, it's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Yeah, I am that I am, or I am who I am. What's some other ways it can be translated? I am who I am. The great I am sometimes. Self-existent. Well, it would, you know, because of the, the way Hebrew verb texts work, it could be he who causes to be, or I be that I be. <laughs> and... Uh, that's the. Uh, I am because I am, or like I am. I am who causes to be, you know, anything like that. So, um, 
Jesus got into trouble for using that name in the Gospel of John. Why? But what it, it no no deeper than that. But what what deeper than that? What what did they consider blasphemy? Because he called himself I am. And uh, you will often hear in evangelical circles that there's at least seven I am statements of Jesus in the in the Gospel of John. There's over forty I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Okay, Daniel, can you share with the rest of the class? <laughs> okay. So um, now this title I have up here, the Kingdom of God, Perception, Proclamation, Demonstration, and Embodiment. I've never used that before. This is something I just came up with two weeks ago to kind of say um, I'm trying to reach increasingly modern audiences that have increasingly been brought up just in the modern ways of looking at Scripture. And so the first thing is that I'm hoping you'll do is you'll perceive the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say about perceiving the kingdom of God to Nicodemus? To what? Yep, to what? To perceive the kingdom. Well, he actually first, in John chapter 3, 3, he says to Nicodemus, Unless you're born again, you cannot perceive the kingdom of God. You cannot see it. Then Nicodemus says, wait a minute. What does Nicodemus respond? Anybody? Uh, Hopefully you know there. all this stuff. What's that? I'm already there. All right. What does he say? Um, this is from ESV. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his, mother womb, into his mother's womb and be born? Right. Now, let me give you a key to understanding Jesus' answers to people. <laughs> because of our modern mindsets... And because we don't know the Old Testament as thoroughly as we're, that Christians are supposed to, we often think when Jesus is answering a question that he's being evasive or not answering the question. He never does that. Not single time. He always answers the question biblically, scripturally, and directly. Every time. It's just cryptic to us because we don't understand how he perceived the scriptures. But the answer was in the Old Testament all along. So Nicodemus is saying, wait a minute, how can you be born again? You can't get small enough to go back in your mother's womb. You can't be born a second time. Nicodemus is approaching it like a modern person from a scientific point of view. Like, you can't do that, right? And he's, a point, he's thinking of man, spirit, soul, and body, the complete, right? And Jesus says... I, uh, that, you know, unless you're, uh, where's the passage? Go ahead and read verse, uh, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, must be born again. Right. So Jesus helps him see that he's not talking about a physical birth again. He's talking about spiritual rebirth, right? And he's talking about the fact that everyone has to be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. The first time you're born, you're born, like John 1 says, out of the will of man, and you're born in, according to the flesh. Your body is born. 
But your spirit, which exists, is outside of fellowship with God. Your spirit is dead. So your spirit has to be reborn in order to enter the kingdom of God. And so, as John 1 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the exousia, or the authority or power, uh, to become children of God, even to those who were born not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of the will of God. And that is what Jesus is referring to as being born of the Spirit. Now, look at the passage if you want. She's reading John 3, 3 and John 3, 5. Um, what does Jesus say differently the second time? The first time he says, if you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, which has to do with perception. Right? What does he say the second time? Right, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Now, if you look at the four words I have there, perception, proclamation, demonstration, embodiment, embodiment is entering. What we're really after in this uh, rest of this year is to see the kingdom of God is actually already, it's in our midst, and God intends to birth his people into it. And they are to proclaim it, demonstrate it, and spread it through the earth. That's what Jesus says means in Matthew 6.33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. A lot of American Christians spend most of their time thinking about where their next meal is coming from. You know, a lot of times if uh, you have undue problems financially, it's God trying to get your attention that you're not actually pursuing the kingdom of God. And uh, trying to help you understand that if you pursue first his kingdom, everything you're going to need physically to do that will be provided. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be provided by some faith message, hocus-pocus, magic quoting stuff. Uh, it'll be provided by, you know, good vo God giving you a good education plan and a vocational plan and a work ethic and, and a learning a trade or, or what have you. But nevertheless, God will take care of all those details if your heart is to, to know and please him and to extend his kingdom. And if you're pursuing that in practical ways. Okay. So uh, let's start by reading. Uh, I guess we'll start with Teresa. And uh, again, let's... Uh, I, I put some verses and brackets up there, but let's just read the, the verses on the page. And these are just some introductory verses. If you notice, there's, it's a little shorter list than two weeks ago, and uh, one or two of the ones I had two weeks ago are gone, and one or two new ones are in for this week. Because I want to keep growing that. There's a lot of verses about the kingdom of God in the Bible, and you have to sort of put them all together to understand where we're trying to do so go ahead with Matthew 6.10, which is the, the theme verse of all the theme verses. <laughs> your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right away, what does that tell us about, like most Americans, somebody was, uh, th thought I was going this direction, I think it was Daniel, that I was trying to talk about how most Americans think the kingdom of God has to do something with heaven. Right? The average American person thinks that the kingdom of God is something that's going to come when Jesus returns and we all go to heaven, right? And that statement can't be reconciled with this statement. 
Because what is Jesus telling us to pray for? And by the way, if Jesus is calling us to pray for something, wouldn't it make sense that we're also supposed to work toward that? Do you think there's any incidents in the Bible of things we're supposed to pray for that we're supposed to work against? <laughs> or things that we're supposed to work for that we're not supposed to pray for? Are those ever discombobulated or disconstrued or in conflict with each other? Only when men gets involved. Right, if we misinterpret, right, that could happen. But it certainly can't happen from Scripture, right? So Jesus is telling us to pray that the kingdom will come to where? The earth. The earth. Now, what does it mean by as it is in heaven? It's already like the, the kingdom of God is already fully manifest and complete in heaven, and he wants us to work toward it being fully manifest and complete in the earth. Right? His will is perfectly done in heaven. There's no one there. You know, Satan tried to usurp his authority and so forth. He no longer lives there. Right? People who die outside of Christ in rebellion to God do not go... Uh, into the presence of God. You, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, they're much happier now. They died of their cancer and they're in heaven now and they don't have any pain anymore. Not necessarily if they didn't know the Lord. Mm -hmm. Right? Otherwise, why would we do evangelism? All right, so Stephen, read the next verse. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. The kingdom of God, or I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I, I was very struggling to keep this on two pages, so I didn't do as many translations as I wanted to. But there's a little method to my madness here. If you know anything about the history of English translations, I'm going uh, very by some very important translations in the history of English translation. So the first English translation was what? Does anyone know that besides me? Wycliffe, right. And so that's the YWC. Young's literal translation was made about 150 years after the King James to, to correct a lot of the mistakes in the King James. Now, there are Christians who are actually what they call King James-only Christians, but the truth is the, the King James has some very important mistakes in it, very important mistranslations, very important. And so Young's literal translation was actually getting at the heart of that, and if you notice, uh, the, the oldest English, and both of those are in very ancient English that we don't speak in anymore. If you ever read a book from the 18th century, it takes a little getting used to the English. Okay, so if you read Shakespeare from the 17th century, it takes a lot of getting used to the English, doesn't it? You have to have the annotations just to understand. Right. I can't, I, I'm so bad at it that I have to read a summary of the Shakespeare play before I go to the Shakespeare play just to, just to make sure I can follow along with what they're saying, right? Now, all you Dominion Academy students can speak Shakespeare. And I, I think the King James is actually mostly a pretty good translation if you speak fluent Shakespeare. I would not recommend using it if you don't speak fluent 16th century or 17th century English. I think it'll hide the meaning from you more than help you with the meaning. Although it's always good to compare translations. That's always helpful. So the word at hand 
is uh, most translations that are second generation, including uh, by, by listing the NASB, ESV, and the New King James there, I purposely am listing, um, I'm purposely listing, um, Um, the three most, most popular literal equivalents good translations on the market today. By listing the Geneva Bible, which uh, on Bible Gateway they have the 1599 version, but the older 1585 version, there are a lot of people who come from what's called a reform perspective who still think that's the best spot translation you should read. And it uh, is quite different than the King James Version. Uh, and in fact, the King James Version was partly made to overcome the fact that the, 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 the type of people who read the Geneva Bible were taking the ideas of the Bible too far. For, for King, Jim, King Jimmy didn't like how far they were taking the, the Bible ideas, and he was trying to back the Reformation off a little bit, purposely by translating words like in Ephesians 4 that should be shepherd to pastor. He was wanting you to think of some professional hireling guy they came through the Church of England and went to the right Bible schools and so forth, not what a, the Bible would actually have you think about with a shepherd. He was trying to stop the progress of restoring the church. That was, that's one of the big problems with the King James Version, to be honest. Um, the Revised Standard Version, I wish we had more time for all the history. Um, a lot of dynamic equivalents, super modern translations use uh, the phrase, is near which is really very equivalent to come nigh in Old English. So the overall, the feeling is this. At hand or come near is the two most popular ways to translate that, the Greek, which I've listed on the next line, and gizo. And I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because the E-N-G is supposed to be one syllable, then the I is another syllable, then zo. That's, uh, whenever you see an O with a long thing over it on a Greek word, that's the, the Greek letter omega and it gives you a, a heads up that that's a vowel. And uh, so it's a vowel to make near, to approach, to be at hand, to come, to draw near, and to even to join one thing together. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is right here among you because the kingdom of God was in him. He is the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom. And he's the agent that God brings the kingdom through. Wherever he was and is, there his kingdom is expanding. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, Matthew 12, 28, please. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Go ahead and read the Greek there. That I don't know how to pronounce that word, so you can... Pathano, pathano P-H-T is, uh, is a diphthong that... Uh, P-H-T-H is one sound. Pathano. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I don't know how you say that one, so you can skip that. What does it mean? Uh, to anticipate or proceed by extension, to have arrived at already, attain, come. So what Jesus is saying is, if I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God, then know the kingdom of God has already arrived. Now, how does that follow in the... It's always good to interpret Scripture in the context of the whole Scripture. So just give me a basic, like, how does that follow from the message of the whole Bible? Well, God, he, his plan was to have Israel be the, his people, and they were supposed to spread the, 
spread the message out to all the nations. Well, they failed miserably when they started to mingle with the other nations and take on their gods and led astray and everything. So at this point, he's going to take it away and give it to the whole world now. He's finally unleashing his full, complete glory, especially with the Holy Spirit and everything, and even sending to use Jesus as like the launching point for the church. Yep, so that's basically correct. But let's go back to Genesis 1. What was God's... What was God's purpose in creating Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. To be fruitful, to multiply, to rule the earth, subdue it, right? They were meant to be vice regents under God, extending his kingdom throughout the earth. That's why there were four rivers going out from the Garden of Eden, because they were actually supposed to give birth to spiritual sons and daughters who followed God's ways also and knew the Lord also and spread civilization to the four corners of the earth. But God foreknew and even predestined that they would fall from that commission. But when they fell, what, what hindrances did there become to the kingdom of God being manifest in the earth? Three primary hindrances that every Christian should know. Yeah, so there, they, man, from, therefore, from that point on, man had a perverted, iniquitous, twisted sin nature. Father Wayne did a very good thing today. At, I don't have time to get into this, talking about three, the three major biblical words for sin. Uh, you know, transgressions, iniquity, and sins are kind of different, but they add up to man is twisted. You were made in God's image, but we haven't done so very well. <laughs> right? Anybody been perfectly godly here didn't need a savior? So, um, so man's sin nature become became one obstacle in the whole earth because every every son and daughter of Adam and Eve was born with that sin nature, right? What else became a problem? Satan. Satan and his kingdom. kingdom, which includes two kinds of beings. What what are they? fallen angels and demons so jesus is saying if i cast out demons by the spirit of god then know that it's all, the kingdom's already come upon you and i'm already taking back the ground i'm already commanding the kingdom of darkness to retreat to get the hell out of here yeah, literally. <laughs> literally get get your hell out of here <laughs> right <laughs> quite literally actually yeah, so uh, what became the other problem? There's a third one. The earth was cursed? Yeah, uh, how's it expressed normally in the Bible? Well, that's the, the, man, the world system. Right, so out of, out of Satan and fallen men, the two of them acting in concert together as man began to multiply created a world system that is the kingdoms of this world are in, at war with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his Christ. And in fact, a major theme, we're starting, after we look at the, defining the kingdom tonight, and hopefully, hopefully we'll get done with that tonight, probably not. Uh, whether it takes, that takes us one or two or three weeks, from there, we're going to look at about 15 major sub-things of, sub of the kingdom of God that, that go all through the Bible. And if you can learn those sub-things and look for them and then read the whole Bible yourself, 
you're, the lights will come on, your Christianity will be ten times deeper at, by the time you read the Bible through one time, if you know what to look for in those major themes, than in all the years you've been a Christian up till now. You'll go ten times further with God by reading the Bible looking for those major themes, if you can just learn what major themes to be looking for. The first and foremost is the kingdom of God. All the other major things come out of the thing, three things we talked about. The king of the kingdom who makes covenants, and he's bringing his kingdom through his covenant people. Right? If you can kind of see that as the major overarching theme of the Bible, and all the other major themes come out of that. So Adam, one of the major themes that we'll look at that came out of that is called dominion. Adam was given the commission to take dominion. But when he sinned, Satan and, the, and sin took dominion over him. Right? So the kingdom of man started to multiply in the earth in rebellion to the kingdom of God. And since then, a major theme in Scripture is there's always been the godly people and the ungodly people. And the ungodly people always oppose and resist and even persecute the godly people. That's why most American Christians, most American Christians sense that, and they try to stay pretty low about their witnessing and so forth. Like, keep your head down, don't say too much about Jesus. And, right? uh, which is why Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Because it's always been, since, since Adam and Eve fell, they had two sons. One was named Cain and the other was Abel. Abel was a faithful prophet to the Lord, right? Cain, what was his problem? Not so much, right? And, and he murdered his brother, right? So the scripture tells us that God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. Now, that does, it does say that they had other sons and daughters. But primarily, Seth carried the Yahweh's godly line through the earth and all the godly saints of the Old Testament all the way through Noah and Methuselah, of course, Lamech, all those guys, all the way down through uh, Abraham were descendants of the Seth line. Isn't Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, also from the Yep, he's from the Seth line. But he was not a Hebrew because, you know, the Hebrews were just part, like God kept narrowing the field because actually, that's a major theme of the Bible, as God narrowed the, the field of who were the primary carriers of his covenant, it was because the primary carriers of his covenant were carrying the seed. They were the heirs of who? The Christ, the king of the kingdom. So God kept narrowing. You know, Jesus fulfilled thousands of prophecies, and many of them have to do with God kept narrowing who he would be born of all the way you know through david and so forth and born in bethlehem and so you know and all that okay so uh what's the next verse there uh, kyle you want to read that one default seat uh austin go ahead and read matthew twenty one forty three. Now, I like that one because I think that's a um, kind of like the fulcrum of a teeter-totter it's, it's, or a Y in the road, you might say. What, who is he talking to? Israel. 
Israel, in particular who? The Pharisees and Sadducees that made up the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel. And he's particularly uh, starting to make his, you know, that's, it's right in the middle of several chapters in Matthew where he's articulating his covenant lawsuit against G Jerusalem, the temple, the Jews, and especially their leadership. And he's, he's telling them they're going to be surrounded by armies and destroyed, and there's not going to be one stone sent upon another, and all this will happen before this generation passes away, which in the Bible, generation is 40 years. And all of that happened within 40 years of the resurrection. Some scholars actually think that's more the definitive uh, pointing of God to the, to the king, king Jesus Christ than even the resurrection. Because Jesus was correct about every exact detail, and he is fulfilling the message of every prophet from Abel to he actually, when he says that the, that, uh, the prophets will, uh, let, let's find that passage. Matthew 23, I think. Uh, no. So go to Matthew 23. Look for the verse that says the blood that uh, so that the blood of the prophets will come. Uh, Matthew, it'd be Matthew 24, I guess, wouldn't it? Or is it 23? Or 24? 23:30. All right, so he says, well, not that one. Matthew 24, 35? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's not 23, 35? Okay, let me get back down there. We're, go ahead and read it out loud. But turn there, everyone, for a minute. Now, oh, sorry. Right. Okay. So, who is Abel? We, yeah, we know who Abel is, right? Doesn't Hebrews tell us that the blood of Jesus uh, speaks better than the blood of Abel? And that's the verse you were thinking of in Hebrews twelve twenty four, right? Yes. So, what are some ways the blood of Abel spoke better than than the, uh, or the blood of Jesus speaks better before the throne of God than the blood of Abel? Because Jesus is completely righteous, and Abel. Right, so the, there's four major reasons that the blood of Abel speaks better than the blood, or the blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel, as Hebrews 12. The number one reason is the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. Remember when God confronted Cain? He says, your brother's blood is crying out for vengeance. Something to think about, because we live in a country that kills one out of three babies that are conceived. And that, the blood of those babies is crying out for vengeance before God. And if you, were, if you really studied a lot of history and you looked, you would definitely see that America is a declining nation, and we have been a declining nation for about 100 years now. 
and we've particularly been a declining nation for the last 60 or 70 years. Now, whether it's going to take 100 years for us to completely fall apart and lose our freedom and be conquered, I don't know, but I doubt it'll last more, more than 50 to 100 more years. Based on if you study the fall of other civilizations, I, I think there might be people in this room who won't live long, will still be alive when America has completely lost all of its history and freedoms, but I don't know. Um, we'll see about that. Now, more importantly, who is Berechiah, uh, who is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah? Does anybody know this? You might if you read... Uh, is he one of the minor prophets? Nope. There is a Zechariah that's a minor prophet, but this is not him. Uh, yeah, that's not, okay. those stories aren't related. Okay. What's that? Nope, it's actually in the book of, jo of Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish uh, writer and scholar. He's actually a guy who was prophesying to Israel during the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus is actually talking about someone here that hadn't been born yet and identifying him exactly, and, and his name is recorded in, in Josephus's The Jewish Wars. That's cool. He's talking about a guy who was, was going to be prophesying uh, to, the, to Israel uh, a generation later. It's pretty amazing. And if you notice, there's a purposeful A to Z connection here. <coughs> and a first prophet to the last prophet in the Old Testament sense. What's that? In Hebrew alphabet, I, I don't know that. So, um, However, uh, however, Jesus, there's not um, there's not a uniform consensus for whether Jesus was speaking Hebrew. He certainly was not. He was either speaking Aramaic or, or Greek, because everyone in Galilee knew Greek and everybody spoke Aramaic or Greek. So there's a very little possibility that Jesus actually spoke what he spoke in Hebrew. What's that? Well, but but Greek has Greek Z is the last letter, and by the well, you're all right. It's still it's still chronologically first to last. You're correct. I, I guess I should have thought that through better. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, anyway, so that's an important turning phrase. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation that produces the fruit of it. Uh, who's got the next one? John Luke, Luke 17. All right, so the Greek word entos is sometimes translated within you, but most translations use in your midst. Why? I would say it's mostly because, you know, fallen men kind of have this idea that we're all children of God and, and that, you know, that 
God is within everyone and so forth. And really, Jesus is certainly not saying that. So he's not saying to people rejecting him and not following him and people who don't want the reign of God in their life that the kingdom of God is within you. But he is saying that it's in your midst. Because he was in their midst. All right, who's got the last one? Daniel, go ahead. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Uh, good. Now, there's a lot of different, there's about five major perspectives on the book of Revelation, and uh, most people today are what's called futurists. They think the things in Revelation are supposed to happen in the future. I'm not, but um, this clearly uses a past tense. So you have to decide, is this something that's going to happen in the future or something that they're actually saying has already happened? And I would interpret it to mean that, it's, that, the, that it has already happened as it is happening and will happen. Almost all scholars would agree that the kingdom of God is both already and it's not completely yet. And so what a, uh, in all, almost all uh, Christian perspectives would, would agree that the kingdom of God is already here in Christ and it's not completely here yet, right? Does anybody think that the kingdom of God is perfectly here today? Just listen. Especially in my life. <laughs> Especially in your life. That's, that's right. Yeah, it's not correct in, in all of our lives, right? So, but um, one of the things you'll find throughout church history is those uh, groups that have emphasized the already aspect of the kingdom of God have generally expanded the kingdom in much greater ways. And those who have tended to emphasize the not yet have tended to be inactive and retreatist. And uh, But there's no Christians that would ever not say that it's already and not yet. And that, you know, it's just a matter of how much already it is versus how much not yet it is. And it has become fashionable to make the not yet part be mostly things that are going to happen after the second coming of Christ. And I don't think Christians throughout the centuries uh, emphasize that. Most Christians emphasize the not yet or the already aspects of Christ in his first coming that that in itself uh, if I say it, that it was an eschatolog eschatological event what would that mean who said what I get in here well what we're saying and if we're saying an eschatological event we're saying a end of the time end of the earth end of this present age event and all I would say is that there have been a lot of Christian perspectives throughout the centuries that make the, um, the first coming of Christ, his first advent that we, you know, that Christians uh, actually celebrate in the season called Advent, his first coming was more of a change the whole world event and change this age event, uh, whereas it's become fashionable in the last 150 years to think of his second coming is going to be a change the world kind of event. That's, and, and I think the Christians who have emphasized the, how much change there is in the first advent of Christ 
have usually been more uh, fruitful and product productive in expanding the kingdom of God in the earth. And that's really what we're trying to go for in this series. By the way, thank you, Byron, for pointing. I, I really hadn't thought out the A to Z thing much. I was thinking about that in English. But the A to Z thing is true in terms of chronology. It's not true in alphabets. <laughs> not Greek alphabets, anyway. Uh, I wasn't thinking about that. It's just true in English alphabet. Uh, but the Abel to, to Zechariah thing is true in, in chronological. I mean, Jesus is talking about the very first prophet the Bible talks about versus the last prophet of the Old Testament, in a sense. Um, all right, so what I think I want to do, I'm, trying, I'm debating whether to just read these statements and then go back and study the scriptures on them. Let's just read some of these statements. So, John Bradbury, why don't you read statement one um, and so forth, and we'll just read some of these statements. Then we'll go back and talk about scriptures. Now, let me just give you a warning that of all the teachings you've ever heard from me, this teaching probably has the least number of scriptures attached to it because what I'm really trying to do is capture what the whole Bible is saying here. And so um, if I were to go back and try to develop any of these points, I'd have to develop them from Genesis to Revelation. So if you can just kind of hold these in your knower, we will be developing all of these from Genesis to Revelation. Your knower is actually like an anatomy, you know, part of your anatomy. It's up here somewhere. <laughs> Maybe Byron can figure that out for us too. <laughs> Get that straightened out. By next week, let us know where our knower is. But, uh, but uh, no, uh, boy, it's hot in here tonight. Jeez. Man, I'm sweating. Give me a fan or something or ice. What's that? It's cold. You think it's cold in here? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm, I'm dying. Uh, it feels like a sauna to me. Maybe I'm not well. I haven't been that well lately. So, Anyway, let's read some of these statements. Then we'll go back and just keep in mind that we're going to be tracing all of these statements through the whole Bible over the rest of the school year. Okay, so if there's not enough scriptures behind, because again, if you've grown up in modern Christianity, you're used to a point and proof text, which normally you can do, but these are a little bigger ideas than that, and you're, you know, we're going to have to trace these from Genesis to Revelation. Go ahead, Mr. Bradbury. Um, let's, I, I, let me, uh, Bob, read, read Colossians 1, 13 and 14 with it. So again, there's a lot of scriptures we could put, we'll, we'll probably talk about this one for a little bit, which means we may not get through all these tonight. 1, 13, 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of All right, so he 
transferred us from the dominion. Now, hopefully you can recognize, especially you Dominion Academy kids, that the word dominion has the same root word as kingdom in it, right? So he's saying he transferred us from the domain, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? When did that happen? He rescued us from the domain of darkness. Uh, ESV says rescued. Doesn't uh, NASB say transferred? ESV says transferred? NASB says transferred and ESV says rescued. Okay, I wonder what translation this is that says rescued on my phone here. Hold on, I gotta see what translation I got on my phone. Come on, pop down. Oh, that's, oh, mine is an older version of the NASB. So the newer NASB says um, transferred. transferred. Yours says delivered, and mine says rescued. And mine's an uh, mine's a out of date NASB. Now, if you remember, I forget what series we did this in, but we went through a bunch of words that have delivered or rescued, and like in Ephesians 2 and so forth in, in a Sunday morning a year or two back, and we noticed that uh, a, there's a certain Greek word that's about half translation say rescued and half, about half say delivered. But uh, they're, they're you know usually the same Greek word, of course. All right, so when did he deliver you or rescue you from the kingdom of darkness in or from the kingdom of, yeah, darkness, and transfer you into the kingdom as beloved son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Could there be two answers? One when he was crucified and then resurrected, and then when he actually personally saved you, because some of us weren't quite alive when he was crucified. Yeah, I would say that, in a sense, he laid the legal groundwork for it in his sinless life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost, and so forth. But for all of us, it, it kind of it happened when we were born again, when we were converted, when we received Christ. Right? What does the Bible actually describe our condition as before we came to Christ? We were held captive by. It's actually in the same chapter, I think, isn't it? We were held captive by Satan to do his will, right? Anybody able to do the will of God apart from the power of his resurrection or grace of God? No, you can't, right? What what is uh okay, what are all the self-help books? You know, like hopefully you know enough about your Christianity that when you're sharing with people, you know that like what fallen man is always trying to do, all other religions of the world from psychology to Buddhism to whatever is trying to restore what man, every fallen man has a sense that life is not what it should be. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Like if you study, has anybody ever read utopian or dystopian novels like The Hunger Games or uh, 1984? I heard somebody likes 1984. Is it Morgan? I love that book. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me worry about you. No, my son Victor used to, my, it's a depressing view of, of life, isn't it? My son Victor read that book like six times in seventh grade, and I started worrying about him a little bit. <laughs> 
You know, because, I mean, it's, you know, like in, it describes the future as a, a boot stomping on the face of, of humanity forever. You know, it's, a, it's about, a, about what totalitarian government is leading us to. You know, letting the government solve our problems. Big brother, right. What's that? But the world is, you know, the, one of the major themes of all dystopian or utopian literature is there's this sense that things aren't working like they're supposed to. There's injustice, there's lack, there's broken relationships, there's hurt, there's pain, right? In all religions, in all politics, which is really a religious enterprise, is trying to get it together without this, without the Christ. It's, and it, that's why it scares the heck out of me that the number one selling types of books in Christian bookstores are two very unbiblical categories. One is uh, you know the whole left behind negative eschatology thing. But two is the self-help books, have your best life now stuff. That stuff makes millions. Right? You can do it. Have your best life now. Austin, all you need to do is study harder, work harder, do more, and, and buy certain, you know, preacher's books. <laughs> right? And then you can have a $4 million house like Bradbury showed me once. What is it? $24 million house. Bradbury showed me a certain TV preacher's house one time on, the, on his phone. Uh, sad. All right, so the kingdom of God is that place, sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is enacted, not only in heaven and on earth. So is God's will done perfectly in heaven? Yes. Is God's will being done perfectly on earth? No. Um, except in a certain sense, right? Aren't the cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to who? The Lord. The Lord, right? And even so, did Satan think he was going to triumph when he, when he was attacking Christ on the cross? He thought it was his greatest hour and his great triumph, right? Mm -hmm. But he was entirely wrong, right? <coughs> so even Satan is only an, an opponent of God in what he wants to be. But he's not actually able to oppose God's ultimate purposes. Isn't that amazing? Even the demons are, in the end, puppets for God's ultimate purposes. So in one sense, uh, everything in creation has to do God's will. But in another sense, what we're talking about is God redeeming people so that, we, so that the creation willingly does his will. That's, does everyone get the distinction? Because even the demons end up doing his will, but that's not their intent. You know, even weird politicians that follow parties like the Democrats or the Republicans, they end up somehow in the weird scheme of things ultimately doing God's will but they they don't have any intention to do that even Trump <laughs> <laughs> no names <laughs> yeah, if, if he's a Republican or a Democrat no the truth of the matter is is you know the idea fallen man has always thought you could solve man's problems by government changes mm 
by passing laws, by legislations, by a central government. That's, in fact, the religion of all ancient societies. That's what the Assyrians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, they all believed in a cult of emperor worship and that the centrally, a centrally planned state government would, you know, save us. That's why the Christians ran into so much conflict, because they wouldn't say what? They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord or Kaiser Kyrios. They said Jesu Kyrios or Christos Kyrios, Christ is Lord. And they got arrested very much <laughs> for that. They, they said, no, thank you very much. We don't, we don't want the kingdom of God. Right? Uh, so that's important. Everyone kind of gets that point, right? All right, so let's read the next point. Uh, that would be Susanna, point number two there. Especially since Byron just left. He was avoiding trying to read. <laughs> having to read. <laughs> Do you know All right, now. We've already talked a little bit about that, right? The kingdom of God is, is already, but not yet. It's present, but it's future, right? It's not just heaven. Um, but it's when, the, when the, this present evil age, where does that phrase, present evil age, come from? Anybody recognize that from? I'll give you a hint. It's in Paul's writings. Narrow it down a little further. Galatians chapter 1, <laughs> verse 4. Yeah, Paul calls the, this world that it says that Christ rescued us, and it's the same Greek word there he uses in Colossians. For that, that we said gets translated rescue or delivered. He rescued us from this present evil age. Right? But, um, so it's a breaking into this present age with the power, the order, spirit, and reign of the king now on the earth. What are some other words we could use, especially, I thought about changing the word order to what? Maybe his law. Right? Is his law still his law? It's, the law is eternal, isn't it? It's just a matter of God never intended for people to, out of their own strength and initiative, be justified by performing. Right? But it's still his righteous standard, and it's still important for us for sanctification, for society, etc. Right? All right. Uh, let's go on to... Uh, Let's go on to number three, uh, Jeff. God has eternally purposed to express his reign in the, through a nation of people born of one regal head, time and space, this present age. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, when, if you uh, 
I corrected some of these after I had sent this to Stephen to print. You can cross out chapters 5 and 6. That's from a previous time I ran a, this as a series. Um, Bethany, turn to Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and then uh, Macy, turn to 1 Peter 2, especially verse 9, but you could read verse 5 too if you want. And of course, 1 Peter 2, 9 is quoting Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Uh, Macy? All right, so let's read those two again. Uh, Bethany, read Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and then this time, Macy, just read verse uh, 9 of First Peter. Mm-hmm. Notice, because he, for Peter, now, all Bibles, by the way, have a way of setting it apart when they quote the Old Testament. So uh, just make sure you know which how that's done in the Bible you're using, which you can usually read the introduction to your Bible. But like in, I, one of the reasons I like the New American Standard is he uses small caps when it's doing that. Uh, the ESV uses, uh, it's, it's not italics, it's a word, oblique print when it does that. And um, a, lot of, a lot of translations will use italics or, and put it in quotes. But 1 Peter 2.9, your Bible should, should even show that that's a quote somehow. Yeah, go ahead and read 5 and 6 again. Now, uh, there's a couple concepts in Exodus that, that Peter leaves out, uh, so let's examine those a little bit. Um, so God says, if you indeed obey my voice. What did God already sovereignly know? They're not, they were not going to be able to, right? That's part of the problem as we go through these points we're going to see is that the people of God are supposed to be the the uh, agent of his kingdom, but we never fully are because we're never fully obedient, except trees. 
<laughs> no, but uh, um, no, we're not, right? And uh, so that that's a problem. But did you notice also Exodus 19 brings out a thing we already covered in point uh, one and two, but especially in point one, it says, for all the earth is mine. So the truth is, again, it's making the point that God's will is always done. He owns the whole earth, but he's talking about those people who would willingly do his will. Right? Now, Peter, because what the new covenant is saying is that in all the covenants of the Bible, starting with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, then David, and, you know, Mosaic covenant, I shouldn't have skipped, uh, the people of God always fail in the covenant because it was left for who to, to, to actually not fail in the covenant? Christ is the only one. And so it's that, do we enter covenant success by trying harder? No, we enter covenant success by entering more thoroughly into Christ. How do we enter more thoroughly into Christ? By his grace. And, and how does his grace come to us? Right. Through the three delivery systems of grace, his word, his church, and his spirit. That's why until uh, you get rightly related to all three of those, you won't come further in his grace. Right. If you, In fact, if you study church history... You'll see lots of people trying to come into deeper relationship with God while leaving one of those three or two of those three out. And it can't be done. Right? Okay, so uh, let's go, before we go on to the next point, let's go on to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, who wants to read next? That would be Chris. Start, Chris, start in Hebrews twelve eighteen, and go. Um, to the end of the chapter, eleven verses. You can handle. Of 
for since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Okay, now. I'm probably going to just try to finish this. Uh, maybe we'll try to get point four in tonight, but I'm going to make sure we understand point three pretty thoroughly. Um, God has eternally purposed to express his reign or his kingdom through a nation of people born of one regal head in a time-space uh, continuum or the, that the Bible calls this present evil age. Okay, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Okay, so... Um, who, does anybody know that they were raised in, like, remember we talked about you may be blind to the paradigms of Scripture that you are studying and so forth. Does anybody know that they were raised in a Christian environment that taught and believed dispensationalism? One, two, three, four, five, six. That's it? Okay. Now, does any one of you that those six can, are the only ones that can answer then? So the rest of you were probably, uh, I can t definitely tell you, you two were raised in dispensationalism, uh, but you probably didn't know that as much. You're probably not aware of that as much, although you're probably starting to be aware of that more, right? Does anybody know um, what the major idea of dispensationalism is? Remember we talked about dispensationalism last year. What it has to do with this point here and in the, in the scriptures that we've read that Bethany, Macy, and Chris read. Yep, but that's that's uh, an outworking of the major idea. That's like more like the uh, I don't know the the leaves of the tree instead of the root of the tree. A big part of the idea is that. Um, Israel and the church are separate entities and meant to be separate entities, and the church is kind of just an afterthought. Exactly. Yeah, so the idea is that is that's what's behind like this whole Zionist Christianity and so forth. It's a, it's a heresy that basically says, um, and, and again, the majority of fundamentalists and evangelicals believe this, but it basically says that Israel and the church are separate entities, and they remain separate entities after the coming of Christ, and that God uh, chose Israel to be saved by performance-based doing his law, and therefore when Christ comes back, the temple and the sacrifices will be restored, and, the, and, the, and we should still celebrate the, the, uh, the th three main festivals of the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Passover and all that, a Feast of Weeks and all that. Um, because uh, the, the things that apply, the things that are prophesied about the people of God becoming the kingdom of God that pertain to Israel do not pertain to the church. And the church is kind of an afterthought because uh, God came up with that idea the, because Israel kept failing. And so the church age is just has promises that only apply to the church and we can't take all the things that the Old Testament says about, about the, the Christ and his people uh, and apply them to the church. Right? So the reason I had, had 1 Peter 2.9 read in Hebrews 12 is because those say the opposite of dispensationalism, don't they? They're saying that we, the church is Mount Zion, right? 
The church is the new Jerusalem. Right? The church is receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. Right? Right? So those verses are incompatible with dispensationalism, as are many other verses. <laughs> Yet, uh, that's where you get in the whole modern eschatology that the temple will be restored and, and all that kind of nonsense. Okay, now, what that does is it takes the, and makes the church less important in your thinking. So if what we're saying about the three delivery systems of grace include the word, the spirit, and the church, you will actually get less out of the church if you're still embracing that dispensational thought or hanging out with those dispensational kind of people and, and staying under their kind of teaching and so forth, you'll underestimate the importance of restoring the church and of being rightly related to the church. Everything from like, you know, many Christians today say, well, I'm following the word and the spirit, but they wouldn't know who the elders they're following are. Do you have a local church that has a, some sort of either bishopric or, or Presbyterian form of government, or in other words, where there's church, a church that you're committed to and you're led by and you're responsible to and accountable to and being discipled by and so forth, you won't have one if you're a dispensationalist. You'll always still interpret what you think to be the higher authority. You won't be able to come under the lordship of Christ. I think so, <laughs> but obviously not everyone thinks that. <laughs> so when we say um, God, you know, when, so when Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it, he's saying that all the kingdom promises that, that Adam was called to, but that Adam fell in, that Noah was called to, but Noah fell in, that Abraham, Moses, and David were called to, but they all failed in. All of those purposes are now going to be fulfilled in Christ. And instead of the people of God always failing so that is it, they, they will succeed because Christ has succeeded, and he will always call us back to covenant faithfulness, forgiveness, obedience, and so forth. And one of the things you're going to see is like what John's been trying to get through in his in his uh, system on James. But you you might uh, be interested, Jonathan, that uh, John John Piper has recently come out with a 96 thesis. Are you aware of that kind con controversy? You should read on it. It's pretty interesting, and I like all of it except the last two sentences. But uh, what's that? It's, uh, you know, it's created a big thunderstorm because he's basically saying that biblical faith requires obedience as an outworking or a, a sign of it, which is really radical to people who think they're re reformed people. Because, they're, because today in the evangelical world, they think faith doesn't require any obedience or character or so forth. And he's making, he's pretty clear that he, you know, what he's saying is that real faith is, is the root, but it will produce right, right works. Mm -hmm. Paul calls it in Romans 1, 5, the obedience of faith. 
And in Romans 15, he uses that phrase again, that God has given him grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Yeah, 1 John is all about that. 1 John is all about that. It's about the one who says they have faith but, does, but lives this way. It's a, it's a book to measure our reality of our faith, as is James. Most Reformed people have not liked the book of James too much. It's, and most evangelicals today would never teach on the book of James. You know, it's actually quite courageous that John's doing the series he's doing on Sunday mornings out of the book of James. You know, a lot of people would not like that series. So, getting back to that, did God's eternal purposes, did a nation of people born of one regal head, was, was that uh, successful in Abraham? No. Right? Remember the controversy Jesus had in John 8? where he says, you're of your father the devil <laughs> to the Jewish people? <laughs> maybe, maybe he didn't, he, he certainly didn't win uh, How to Have Your Best Life Now. Or <laughs> That's why he didn't have a $24 million mansion, did he? He, he said the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. <laughs> he wasn't selling many of his books. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, Right? Jesus says, you're of your father the devil to those who were not believing in him. And what did they answer? We're not born of fornication. We have only one father, Abraham. And Jesus is differentiating the faith of Abraham from being a biological descendant of Abraham. He's saying, the deeds that you're doing, Abraham didn't do. Because his faith as the New Testament says, through Jesus, through Paul, through James, and through John, uh, that the deeds of Abraham were the, the true deeds of real faith. Right? So what Jesus is actually doing is he's creating a new race of people born of a new regal head called the church. And they are the heirs of all the promises of God. That's why dispensationalism is trying to, to, to uh, undermine the whole Bible's message. They are actually, you know, the whole, this whole, you know, restore the sacrifices in the, in the, in, in the uh, cell, whatever you call them, the uh, uh, festivals and all this. They are actually Antichrist. They're the Antichrist. And they masquerade as being biblical and Christian, right? But God, uh, can, can, can Bob Timer be a, a race of people who does God's will and brings about his kingdom in and of himself? No. He has to be reborn in Christ. If anybody can, Bob's the one who can pull it off. No. Uh, I don't think Bob would agree with that. But uh, <laughs> No, right? So we have to be reborn. That's what, you know, what we started with tonight. We have to be, to, to see the kingdom of God and to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be reborn from the regal head of the kingdom of God, the only one who was born of Adam, and uh, who, the second Adam, who was born of a woman, but, was, but wasn't born with a sin nature because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? and who faced every temptation we face, 
But he, instead of succumbing like Adam did, instead of succumbing like every descendant of Adam has ever done, he triumphed in obedience to his heaven. He always did that which is pleasing to the Father, even to the point of death. That's the message of the whole New Testament. That's the message of the whole Bible. And in him is how you can obey God. I live out of me all the time. And I fall and disobey God all the time. But when I'm led by the Spirit, I don't carry out the deeds of the flesh. Right? I'm not looking to go back and restore the temple and the laws and the festivals and, and earn my salvation by performance-based thinking. I'm, I'm looking for a new avenue to becoming an obedient son. I want to be reborn of my obedient older brother and become a son of God that way because a, a son always does what his father does. That's why one of, Jesus was pretty adamant that you, in a sense, have to renounce your family because when you come to Christ, you're born again of God. And God comes first over even your own natural family. <coughs> right? You know, one of the things I made very clear to my kids when they were teenagers is I'm releasing you to be followers of Christ, not me. Go, go do what God wants you to do. Now, two of my kids chose to, to, after they finished college and all that, to come back and be a part of what we're doing now. But they're doing it because they're following Christ, not because, they're, because I asked them to do it. I kicked them all out and made sure they were, knew that they were kicked out. And said, come back if God wants you to come back. Not a second before he wants you to come back. I don't have any plans for your calling or your vocation or anything. You're to walk with God. Right, so this third point is really important. Uh, it, when, if you remember when we studied the eight covenants of the Bible last year, we called them federal head or regal head covenants, right? And they started with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David, and then eventually we went, got to Christ, and uh, of course the marriage covenant, so I'm leaving one out. Adam, Noah, Moses. Eternal. Or Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Oh, we talked about the eternal covenant was the first one that we talked about, right? And the eternal covenant has finally been fulfilled in Christ, right? The new covenant and the eternal covenant are really one and the same. All right, let's do uh, point four, and then we'll, uh, let's at least read it. Uh, maybe we won't comment it. So who would be next? Jonathan. We're, and we came across those phrases in the last point when we read Exodus 19, 5, and 6, and when we read 1 Peter 2, 9, right? Sorry, go ahead and start over again. Do we know, all know that, right? That those phrases come from 1 Peter 2, 9 and from Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Okay, go ahead. Let's do it again.
in dying is that they might be reborn of one regal head into his newness of resurrected life and enter now into his new kingdom creation. In other words, there's no true kingdom life on the wrong side of our daily cross. Good. Now, Galatians 2.20, if you don't know that one by heart, I hope you would. It's, Paul says, um, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. In the, the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And he goes on to say that if righteousness comes from the law, by which he means performance-based approach to the law, uh, then then uh, Christ died needlessly, right? So the catch here was all exciting till now when, because we were saying, like, God wants to rebirth you in this new birth will make you a son of God or daughter of God in, in, in obedience and so forth. But the catch is that the way you are born again is you have to die <laughs> with Christ. You, there's only the new life on the other side of his death, burial, and resurrection. That, wasn't, that won't sell many books or be real popular or build big churches, but that's the truth. You won't see those books in the Christian bookstore. So we'll, uh, since it's 8.30, we'll pick that uh, up at point four next week. If you want to cheat ahead, I hope you do, you can read some of the rest of the scriptures on the bottom of that page and come up with some other ones. Because, again, those are just some scriptures that... that uh, so we will pick it up with uh, the bottom of the page next time. Somebody remind me of that next Tuesday. <laughs>